Please welcome Mr. Greg Proops. Hello, Cineas. Once again, the Greg Proops Film Club convenes here at Hollywood's most luxurious cinematic palace, uh, the Egyptian Theater, located uh, cleverly across the street from a bunch of bars that people go to that you never want to consort with. And so those bars serve the purpose of being bars that keep people away from you that you never want to be with. And that's what makes Hollywood Boulevard so bloody awesome. That and the people dressed in unbelievable superhero outfits who you wonder, really? What is it you do all day? And then you're like, oh, this is what you do all day. Um, uh, or uh, let me just describe the scene for those of you listening elsewhere, because we have um, tens of listeners around the world. And uh, Hollywood Boulevard is a, a mixture of uh, old school uh, Hollywood, um, uh, a, a terrible, terrible, terrible emotional trauma that happened to someone, um, an awful spill, and uh, the smell of myriad different things, some things that people are getting rid of uh, um, physically, and uh, sometimes just maybe they've dropped it uh, or misplaced it somehow, uh, and the gigantic scope of the tumultuous um, uh, tinker toy that is uh, Los Angeles, and particularly Hollywood Boulevard. So across the street is Musso and Frank Grill, which no one in LA calls Musso and Frank Grill and never has, Musso's as it's known, uh, and that's a delightful place to have a drink or uh, um, eat something so large that it will live in inside you forever. And next door to that is what appears to be kind of a Jimmy Buffett margarita affair, um, which has, you know, um, fun lamps and people sitting on the street staring at you balefully with murder in their eyes, with weird reddened globes as you walk by. And then next to that, an Irish bar that has all you can eat prime rib. And I don't think anything in the summer is more enticing to the people of Los Angeles than an all you can eat Irish bar situation. Um, if there's one thing a gigantic barrel with the word Jameson painted on it says to me, it's Slauncha, let's get this party going, um, Irish style. And if there's one thing the Irish do, it's eat all you can eat prime rib almost all the time while sitting outside. So it's an authentic Irish experience. Uh, of course, here, uh, the courtyard is full of uh, Egyptian runes and glyphs and uh, uh, um, mythical, um, well, not, you know, the, the, the animals that the Egyptians worshipped. And uh, those are the animals that invented cinema. Not a lot of people know this. Cinema was invented uh, um, during the reign of Cheops. And uh, the pyramid was actually a, a snack bar adjacent to the Sphinx, which is where they showed the movies on the side of the Sphinx. And they only showed movies that were a conundrum. Uh, uh, a lot of Riddle movies and uh, movies with uh, characters named the Riddler. But tonight, to the matter at hand, uh, the 1971 musical comedy classic starring the insanely effective Gene Wilder, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's not called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, even though the book by the um, tepid Nazi Roald Dahl is. Um, did I say tepid? Unenthusiastic Nazi. Um, and someone went, aww. That's the sound that every host longs to hear more than anything on a recording, is an audience member going, oh. Uh, Roald Dahl wrote the book, and it's called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and they had to change a bunch of things about it. And David Seltzer, who famously, after he wrote Charlie, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, wrote the movie The Omen. With, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a resume, guys. I don't know what your life is like or what you're putting forward when you go in for me to job interview, but you're not telling anyone. I wrote Willy Wonka and then I wrote The Omen. 
Uh -huh. And uh, he, uh, I think it might have been one of his first screenplays. Mel Stewart, who directed this movie, was largely a documentarian. And the year after he made Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, he made the awesome documentary here at the LA Coliseum called Watt Stacks, which is a, a two and a half hour um, film of uh, every major black artist, the Staples Singers and uh, Albert King. Um, Jesse Jackson speaks in it. Uh, I think Jim Brown gets up at one point. It's, a, it's an extraordinary document of um, sort of the Black Woodstock that happened in Los Angeles in 72. Uh, but Mel Stewart was uh, hip to the jive and uh, he uh, uh, was uh, woke. So Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, in the book, the Oompa Loompas are um, tiny African pygmies. And um, he determined, Mel Stewart, that that wasn't going to play that well because uh, people might think that it was the worst thing in the history of cinema. So, uh, unlike George Lucas uh, and uh, The Phantom Menace, he went the other way and decided that maybe 1930s Tarzan-style racism wasn't going to sell to the kids as much as it might. And by the way, they had a giant deal with Quaker Oats to sell Wonka bars. So, Quaker Oats paid for this movie, by the way. Uh, uh, Mel Stewart was working with David Walper, who is a documentarian. I have no idea why I'm waving this around. And... Uh, he went into a meeting, Walper, with Quaker Oats because they were gonna, they'd done a, a picture with him on TV, I think. And by chance, when he was talking about another project, one of the Quaker Oats execs said, do you have any ideas about chocolate? <laughs> because Quaker Oats is looking to get into the chocolate industry and we want to make a chocolate bar for the kids. And um, he said, in fact, I do. Mel Stewart's daughter, Madeline, had read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And said to her dad, I just read this book and you need to make it into a movie. She was 11. Uh, this is talking about being a go-getter. When I was 11, uh, we would ride our, our, our Stingray bikes. I had an orange crate that had a giant sissy bar on the back. I don't have time to explain what a sissy bar is. Just go with me on this. I know there's a lot of young people here tonight and you're like, what was it like when iPods were powered by water, grandfather? Um, well, it was fun. It was a simpler time. Uh, everyone, your father uh, smoked in the car, um, drank booze. That he, My father kept a bottle of brandy under the seat uh, so he could drive with his knees and smoke a Salem with the windows rolled up. And um, everybody ate hamburgers and stuff like that. And um, the cars got like 60 gallons to the mile. Cars just burned fuel. You would just put a Triceratops in your Buick in, in the little hole and then just burn it from there. You didn't have time to wait for it to morph into gas. And by the way, everyone had unsafe sex, and we were all thin, so fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, you fat-ass young people. We were all fucking thin then. Okay, dad was smoking in the car, and no one called child services. It wasn't a big deal. Were things better? No. In some ways, they were. People are like, oh, aren't you upset about the, thing, the things that are happening now? I certainly am. But I grew up when Nixon was president, and then Reagan followed after him. So if you think lying um, fascist racists are new to the presidency... <laughs> All right, so... He goes into the meeting, and, and uh, because Madeline uh, had convinced, she said to her dad, you have to make this into a movie. And he went, I can't just make a book into a movie. This is like a process. And she's like, you should make this one. So he did, and he was able to get it made. They went to Germany and shot it, and Madeline's in the movie. Um, she has one line. She's in the classroom scene, which is a very funny scene, and she says, I think her line is about 100. And I was watching a documentary uh, on Mel Stewart, an interview with him, and he said, I gave her one line because she was a bad actress. And you're like, wow, she came to you with this property, 
she pitched you in the living room over a bowl of uh, uh, Quake Quisp. Thank you, I'm trying for a period cereal here. There was Quake and there was Quisp. All right, Booberry, if you're gonna be so fussy about it. How do I know it was breakfast? She might have been eating an Otter Pop. And if she was, I hope it was Choo Choo Cherry. My favorite Otter Pop was Alexander the Grape because it was a picture of an otter and it was Alexander the Great, that he was grape. And by the way, the flavors of otter pops, the green one didn't taste like lime, it tasted like green. And the purple one was ostensibly grape, but it leaned more toward that Kool-Aid grape flavor, which meant like, I don't know how many chemicals are in this, but all of the little tiny letters and weird numbers at the end of this um, ingredient list are sure to make me feel better. Um, in any case, uh, uh, she pitched him the movie over an otter pop, and he makes the picture, and then has the temerity to say that she was a bad actor. Time will tell, and you will be the judge tonight, whether Madeline assays her line properly. Uh, also, his son is in the movie as well. Uh, a, a very brief uh, note of, uh, there's always a, a tragedy to go with every triumph, and Miss Nickerson, who plays uh, uh, Violet Beauregard uh, has uh, recently left us and is uh, in the giant cinema in the sky. Uh, and that's the saddest thing. Of course, Jean uh, um, traveled on to uh, the next uh, destiny uh, several years ago. Uh, a couple of things that I think are interesting before I want to talk about Jean um, Wilder. The set designer in this picture was named Harper Goff. And Harper Goff um, did a little picture called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for Disney in the 50s. He designed the Nautilus. Uh, in that movie, which is quite good. And Walt Disney came to him because he'd seen him do drawings in Esquire magazine, and he asked Harper Goff to help him design Disneyland. So he went around the country, Harper Goff, to all the amusement parks in the United States in the mid-50s, and he came back and he was like, they're awful. It's a sordid affair. There's junk laying on the ground. They're dirty. The carnies are, are felons with tattoos that are misspelled on their forehead. Um, there's horrible candy apples that were on, in those days, wooden spikes that went right through your soft palate after you ate it. And then you were chased through the woods by a band of brigands. So he was like, didn't have a hot report on what was going on with the amusement parks of America. And he said to Walt, what do I, uh, uh, how are we going to do this? How are you going to build an amusement park that doesn't have these elements? And Walt Disney went, well, first of all, there will be no Jews at my studio. And secondly... I was talking to Henry Ford on the phone the other day about the race problem. And I'm a vuncular. He said to him, uh, um, not at my amusement park. My amusement park is going to be clean and staffed by good-looking young people. So the city hall uh, is based on Harper Goff's hometown city hall, which I think is Fort Collins. And uh, he, he ripped off a bunch of elements of his hometown and put them in there. And he also designed the entire jungle ride with a guy named Bob Matahu later designed the shark in Jaws, Bruce. Uh, all the hippos and whatnot were uh, carefully selected to be in the jungle ride at Disney. Is there still a jungle ride in Disneyland? Okay, thank you. Someone's been recently. I haven't been to Disneyland in a while. The last time I went, I think we took mushrooms, and uh, I was asked to leave Dopey alone. Uh, a little tip, is Sleeping Beauty Castle still there? You walk through Sleeping Beauty Castle, it's a bunch of dioramas. I don't know if it's there anymore. It was one of the oldest things in Disneyland because nothing moved or did anything. You just walked by a bunch of windows and they were dioramas and then had the spinning wheels and then Prince Charming, uh, uh, you know, me tooing her and the whole, you know, the whole uh, thing. And 
I remember taking acid there in the 70s when Space Mountain had first opened. And uh, my friend uh, Jeff was tweaking pretty hard when we got to the, uh, the line goes right in front and there were these raised letters that came out that said Space Mountain. And he kind of got hung up on them uh, until, to the point where people were like, let's go. And he was like, they're big and they're red. Um, then after we went on Space Mountain, we went into Cinder, uh, Sleeping Beauty's Castle, which was a terrible idea because you oughtn't be in an enclosed space with a lot of heavy breathing people um, where you're just looking at dioramas. There was one thing, I think there was a wishing well you could yell into. There was also a Monsanto ride where you would go into a molecule, uh, into a snowflake, and uh, no other connotation in those days. A snowflake was simply a snowflake. Um, evidently created by the company Monsanto, whose slogan was, better living through chemistry. And when you went in, there was a giant thing and it said, Monsanto, better living through chemistry. And I remember I dropped one of the hits of acid on the floor and it fluttered to the bottom of our car and I had to pick it up like that and take it. And then I was like, you know what, Monsanto's right. <laughs> there was a giant eyeball on that. So Harper uh, did that. And um, so he uh, designed the Wonkavator and the uh, uh, Wonkatania and the chocolate room and the uh, uh, invention room, all that is, um, is Harper Goff's fancy. All those weird frills and mixture of early uh, 20th century, late 19th century H.G. Wells um, finery mixed with a, basically a junkyard, which I think was at Mel Stewart's urging uh, that the place be crazy at all times. Um, this won't ruin the movie for you at all, um, but the children uh, disappear one by one uh, from this plot. And uh, when they get on the Wonkatania, notice that there's no extra seats. As if somehow they knew Augustus Gloop and his mother uh, would be gone. Uh, Gene Stapleton, who played, uh, uh, I'm blanking on her name, or Edith Bunker on All in the Family for uh, 10 or more years, and then carried on, I think, in Archie's place after that. She had an enormously, wildly successful television career, and she was a gifted comedy actress. You might know her from a picture called, uh, what's the one with, okay, now I just blanked on it, with Dean Martin and Judy Holiday. Bells are ringing. Uh, she plays one of the phone operators in that. In any case, uh, Gene Stapleton came in, auditioned for the part of um, Mrs. TV, whose name, fantastically, which is never said in the movie, is Paloma TV. And uh, Mel Stewart said, Gene, you're fabulous. I want to give you the role. And she goes, can I call you back tomorrow? And he goes, what are you talking about? I'm giving you the role. She goes, uh, there's this TV show that wants me. And he's like, this is a movie. This is a major motion picture. And she calls back and she goes, Norman Lear's doing this thing called All in the Family and they want me to play the wife. I think I'm going to take that. So uh, she made a, a, a fairly groovy uh, career decision there. The woman who plays uh, Mrs. TV is named uh, awesomely, as you'll see in the credits, Dodo Denny. If you're thinking about changing your name, and I know what you're thinking, your last name is Proops. You should have changed it a long time ago. But I wanted to, my actual real name is Greg Carson, but Carson is so ethnic. The last line of the picture um, is a wonderful last line. Much like, some like it hot, or, uh, you know, when you, we, you can think of several pictures where the, the last line of the movie really wraps it up in a big bow. And this one does, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. However, the original last line of the movie was, Grandpa Joe shouts, yippee. Bell Stewart looked at the script and went, I'm not doing this. 
I'm not ending the movie with Jack Albertson going, yippee, like that. He was like, no, we've gone through too much. There's been too, you know, everything's happened. It's an emotional roller coaster. So he called David Seltzer up. David Seltzer was hiding in Maine. Uh, and Roald Dahl, by the way, gets full credit for the screenplay and the story and the book. David Seltzer gets no credit, even though he wrote it, because um, he changed everything. Uh, Roald Dahl hated the movie, by the way, which that, it kind of makes me happy. I think about him sitting in that weird shed in his garden, fulminating uh, and, and thinking of another book and, and, and some other weird knob gag to throw into a children's novel and him fuming that he hated this movie and then, of course, accepting all of the money because it, it did quite well at the end of the day. Um, he called David Seltzer up and said, I need a new final line for the movie. And David Seltzer went, well, how long do I have? And Mel Stewart was like, you have now. So the final line was written on the moment uh, by a 31-year-old person who later... Two years, four years later, went on to write The Omen, which has the fantastic line, um, it's all for you. Uh, um, thank you. That was for me because I saw The Omen. <laughs> oh, that was what it was. So they changed the Olympus. Yes, I mentioned that. Um, a couple of little things. Uh, Gene Wilder, this is in between... Uh, he'd already done The Producers and Quacks of Fortune, and then after this, he writes and stars in Young Frankenstein, which he basically got made. He, he got Mel Brooks to do it. When he first told Mel Brooks the idea, Mel Brooks was like, that's cute. Then, of course, they did it. And it's one of Mel Brooks' more acute motion pictures, seeing as how it's a spot-on genre parody, as well as a, a knob-gag festival. Um, and uh, he didn't really have a lot of hits at this point. They shot the picture in Munich, uh, for about five weeks. And Mel Stewart said he picked Munich because he didn't want anyone to be able to identify where they were when the movie started. Because when they show you the town, and as a child, I remember seeing it at the Redwood Theater in 1971 with my friend Forrest Brakeman on a double bill with the movie H.R. Puffin Stuff. Yes, there was a movie of H.R. Puffin Stuff. It was director's cut, Criterion. Um, Puffin Stuff did a lot of the voiceover. And went, Here's a scene I remember where Clang and Clang came along in the room, room, bell, and um, uh, Freddie speaks on it for a while. Oh, that was just a flute. Um, which he, Orson and Seymour, well, I enjoyed doing the motion picture. I thought being on the big screen was fantastic. Um, thank you. That was uh, the, the vulture from H.R. Puff and stuff. And the, uh, oh, I've got impressions. Uh, it was on a double bill. Mama Cass, uh, Cassandra Elliott, is in the H.R. Puff and stuff movie, which is just smashing. Not in enough pictures, quite frankly. And uh, I remember when we were watching the movie the first time in 1971, um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had just died. What a time it was. And um, the Hindenburg. Uh, we, we, I remember watching the movie and thinking, where on earth are they? This doesn't look like anywhere in America. And it doesn't look like England either. And it's because it isn't England. And they shot in some weird factory in a, a giant studio there. So I got to interview Gene Wilder once upon a day about... 15 years ago in London, um, it was for an airline, one of those airline promos that you watch when you fly to London, and you know at the end they show you a thing like, when you're in London, you should do this. So it was me walking around London going, 
You know, when you're in London, you should see Neil Simon's Laughter on the 53rd floor, starring Gene Wilder. We had a conversation with Gene Wilder, and then cut to me and Gene Wilder. So I went to see him in the play, and he played Sid Caesar in the play. And this is a no-knock on Gene Wilder, who was an absolute comedic genius of the highest caliber. He's not Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar was gigantic. And the play takes place, like all Neil Simon plays, um, when he was funny in the 50s. So... Thank you. That was for two people, evidently. Everyone else is like, there seems to be a lot of axes grinding. You haven't heard fucking axes grind the way I grind them. <laughs> Neil Simon was a writer on uh, Caesar's Hour, was it? Or your, I guess your show of shows. And uh, um, he uh, 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 wrote 17,000 plays about that time period. And Laughter on the 53rd Floor is one. Sid Caesar was six foot four, and in those days, taking fistfuls of speed to get through the giant shooting schedule because they did an hour and a half live television show every Saturday night that they wrote and rehearsed through the week and then put the thing on. And then, in his off hours, was drinking gallons of scotch and taking acid to calm down. So he had manic episodes. For instance, he held Mel Brooks out the window of the 53rd floor where they were writing the show. You've heard of the kids in the hall. The kids in the hall were the writers who couldn't get into the writer's room. They literally had chairs and tables down the hallway. Um, and you worked your way up into the writer's room on this show. It was a competitive atmosphere. And one time, Sid was not happy with a sketch. And because Sid was enormously physically strong, strong enough to hold Mel Brooks out a window and then bring him back, um, if only he'd known he was going to make the musical of the producers, things might have come out a little differently. The point is this, he held him out the window and he was very upset about this one script, so he punches a hole in the wall and scared the devil out of everyone. In the play, Laughter in the 53rd Floor, um, Gene Wilder plays Sid Caesar and he becomes furious in one scene. Well, if there's one thing Gene Wilder does better than anyone else, it's become hysterical. If there's one thing he doesn't do better than anything else, is be a six foot four person who punches a hole in a wall. So clearly, there was a piece of paper and you could see it on the flat of the set that had been sort of taped and painted over to match the wall. And Gene Wilder would go, God damn it! <laughs> and burst the piece of paper. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm an audience member who's willing to suspend disbelief on almost anything. For instance, Denise Richards as a, a nuclear physicist or whatever, or, or Daryl Hannah as an astronomer. Those kind of things. I'm willing to just hang disbelief of... Uh, Polly Shore, uh, uh, you know, was a... a played a, a member of society in a bunch of movies. I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. But that one I was like, hmm. So we go to interview him and he couldn't have been nicer or more gracious. He took a picture with me, which I still have. And I'm very proud that I got to take a picture with him. And he wasn't the happiest cat that I've ever met in my life. He was a very sensitive individual. Having lost his mother and his wife to cancer, um, he was quite concerned about that and mortality. He also... Um, conscious rather than concerned. He also, when uh, he passed, had, had Alzheimer for several years and knew all about it, but refused to disclose it to the public because kids were still coming up to him on the street and going, Willy Wonka. And he didn't want anyone to know that anything was wrong. So he actually passed with the secret of his own passing. So having a conversation with him, I asked him, did he feel that Richard Pryor was a genius? And he said, yes, I do. And then Young Frankenstein had been on uh, BBC Two the night before at midnight, uh, or 11.30, and I'd watched it again. And I said, have you seen Young Frankenstein? Uh, have you seen Young Frankenstein? It's so good. Uh, I said to Gene Wilder, it's such a marvelous screenplay, and you're so wonderful in it. And he goes, I watched it recently. And it was like, recently? 
There were four channels in England then, and nothing was on at midnight except Young Frankenstein the night before. He said, I watched it recently, and I thought I was a little over the top. <laughs> and it was like, a little over the top. The, the Prussian army was lying in wake after you decimated their ranks with your full bayonet charge. The point of the movie is that you scream, give my creation life at the top of your voice. And I asked him about Willy Wonka. And he goes, Mel Stewart was a documentarian and he hadn't directed comedy. And Gene Wilder, as you know, is quite a good writer and wrote several novels and uh, his own biography and a bunch of motion pictures. And he said, uh, we're gonna shoot the, uh, the opening scene. He went to Mel Stewart and said, not the opening scene, but the, when Willy Wonka is introduced into the picture, which by the way, is a few minutes in. So gird your loins. Uh, the first couple of songs uh, paved the way for the mayhem to come. Uh, Gene Wilder said, uh, when he walks toward, uh, he comes, the gate's been locked, no one's seen Willy Wonka in 20 years. And he comes out with a limp and a walking stick. And the walking stick gets stuck in the bricks and he falls on his face. And as he falls, he catches himself and does a, a complete shoulder roll and jumps up and everyone applauds. And Mel Stewart said, why would he do that? And Gene Wilder went, well, it's funny. And he said, because after that, no matter what I say, the rest of the picture, no one will know whether I'm lying or not. And I asked him about it, and he told me that story. And then he said, we shot that scene a bunch of times. There was 15, 16 takes. And he said, it was hurting at that point. I was rolling, doing the head roll every single time on the cobbles. It wasn't fun. And he said to him, Mel Stewart said, Gene, will you do one without it? Now the story that you read on online and there's interviews with him, even on Larry King of all places, and he says that he was adamant that he wouldn't do the movie unless that he was allowed to do that trick in the very, when he's introduced. But what Gene Wilder told me was, he goes, Mel Stewart on the set goes, will you please do one without it just so we have one? And he went, I don't want to. And he's like, why don't you want to? And he went, because if I do it, that's the fucking one you're gonna use. <laughs> and I want that to be in. And I said, did you do it? And he went, yes. Reluctantly, I did one where I didn't fall. And he goes, and thank God we didn't use it. And thank God for a lot of things, including uh, this chance to visit a world of pure imagination. I give you now, from 1971, starring Gene Wilder, uh, with music by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brookhuis, directed by Mel Stewart, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory.